have a secret to tell you. I don't prepare for these intros almost at all. (laughs) If you've been listening for a while, you're probably like, duh, I can tell that you're just riffing this off the cuff. And if I've been fooling you, well, that's, I guess I'm a great actress. Anyway, this leads into what I'm going to say, but I'll say hello. My name is Sarah Buino. I am the host of Conversations with a Wounded Healer. And on this podcast, I talk to other people in healing type professions about the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. So why do I bring up to you that I don't prepare for these? Um, Because sometimes I think to myself, Sarah, are you full of shit? And do you know what you're doing? And who cares? Who's going to listen to this? Even though people keep showing up, clearly you're saying stupid things and nobody cares. And some might call that imposter syndrome. But I've been seeing a lot on social media lately about how imposter syndrome might not be the right term. So I'm going to read to you a series of infographics from a person called Kim Sarah. It's K-I-M-S-A-I-R-A on Instagram. So you can follow her. And the first slide says, it's not a you problem. It's capitalism. Imposter syndrome is a psychological pattern in which a person feels inadequate, unworthy, doubts their skills and talents, and may even downplay their success just as luck. Research studies have shown that 82% of people feel imposter syndrome. A 2016 study showed that 25% of men and 50% of women experience imposter syndrome, and that is also prevalent among BIPOC. However, imposter syndrome isn't actually a syndrome. It's not a medical condition. It's a result of the societal structures and systems that we live in, which causes us to feel feelings of inadequacy, unworthiness, etc., aka imposter syndrome. The problem with imposter syndrome is that it gives the false perception that it's the individual's fault, as if there's something wrong or deficient about them compared to everybody else. The cure, quote unquote, to imposter syndrome isn't just believing in yourself or working harder. In a capitalistic society that is divided by aspects like gender, class, race, we don't even have a playing field to begin with. We don't all have equal access to the same resources and opportunities. And the concept of success, which is where imposter syndrome usually derives from, isn't even fair game. For example, if you belong to a group that is more racially, economically disadvantaged because of the system that you live in, you would have to overcome more barriers to achieve quote-unquote success as compared to someone who is privileged. And if you're more privileged, you might know that the structural discrimination has worked in your favor for your success. Therefore, because of these structures in place, it would be easy to feel like an imposter or feeling as if you aren't worthy of the success you achieve. The concept of success is based on unequal systemic structures directly correlated with profit-driven capitalism. We're constantly in a rat race with the increasing standards of productivity and work performance. It also doesn't help that our education and workforce systems literally base our individual performances off of subject metrics like KPIs, which I just found out recently are key performance indicators, or only the top 5% get scholarships to free education. So it's easy to feel like if we aren't performing up to our own standards of productivity or the standards ingrained in society, we may feel like we're slacking, inadequate, aka imposter syndrome. 
Imposter syndrome is a psychological result of how we are constantly working to meet the standards of quote-unquote success in a complex capitalistic system that is unequal to begin with. We need to constantly challenge what success is and even how we can redefine it. How can we not be affected by imposter syndrome? It's natural to feel imposter syndrome given the society we're ingrained in, but we need to practice more self-compassion, contentment, and define who we are beyond promotions, grades, or financial success. We need to reframe how we work and how we view ourselves. Work towards building equity by uplifting others and sharing resources rather than competing for them. So brava for this post. And I hope that, you know, sometimes I feel like when I talk about internalized capitalism or racism, white supremacy, I sometimes feel like I have a hard time explaining the why and just kind of assume that you all know what I'm talking about and that you're going along with me. But I think that infographic series really ties together how capitalism can be really painful and really difficult when we have internalized it. And that's and that's how we're moving through the world. So this is a space that creates an invitation to be kinder to ourselves, to give ourselves space for rest and to redefine what success looks like. So success is not how many Instagram followers you have, how much money you're making, how many employees work for you, X, Y, Z, whatever it is. It's really like, how are you as a human? And I want to lead with love and connection. Like that's my jam. So those are the words that I have for you today before we talk to today's guest. If you want to share the love, I would love for you to share this podcast, sending it to your friends, family, loved ones, even your enemies. I don't give a shit whether you like them or not. But if you send it, if you send the podcast, it's really helpful and gets the messages out. And I just want to continue to share messages like this with everyone so we can change the world, right? Let's change it together. Yay! Okay, podcast listeners, we have something very exciting happening. You've spent a lot of time getting to know me and my guests over the years, and now it's time for me to learn more about you. For the month of November 2021, we're asking listeners to tell us about yourself via a short survey. This helps us to get to know who you are, what you like, and how we can better serve you in the future. Anyone who participates in the survey and shares their email will be entered into a drawing with prizes totaling over $300. We're including a weighted blanket, crystal water bottle, a workbook by Shauna Marie Brown, a gift card from a cool witchy shop called The Eighth House, kinetic sand, and a virtual Reiki session with moi. To be entered into the drawing, go to tinyurl.com slash cwhsurvey2021. Fill out the survey by 11.59 p.m. Central Time on November 30th, 2021, and winners will be announced by December 15th. As a special thank you to Patreons, all donors will be entered into the drawing twice for an extra chance to win. So if you'd like to become a Patreon donor, visit www.patreon.com slash woundedhealer. That's W-O-U-N-D-E-D-H-E-A-L-R. Thank you so much for being a listener. Whether this is your first episode or you've been here with me all along, I really look forward to hearing from you and getting to know you better. Okay. 
So today's amazing guest is Reverend Maureen Cotton. Maureen is an interspiritual minister serving the spiritual but not religious and non-dogmatic people of faith. Her true title is Thresholder. Mm, I love that. She helps prepare people for life's transformative times, in particular weddings, death, and dying. So I hope you enjoy this really soulful, spiritual conversation with Maureen Cotton. Hello, Maureen. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer for like the 11th time, thanks to technical difficulties. Still happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, would you like to share with listeners what it is that you do? Yes. So I am an ordained interspiritual reverend. That makes me a reverend for the spiritual, but not religious. Also non-dogmatic people of faith. And I get along with secular people. Great too. I was called to the work initially to be with people at the end of life. At the moment though, I am focused on people who are engaged, who are planning their wedding and also preparing for marriage itself. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really eager to definitely talk about the way that you support people in crafting ceremony. But before that, what led you to the ministry? I got on the path after my grandfather had a really good death. And my dad had died more kind of traumatically when I was growing up. Mm. So I really noticed like, well, this was a good death. This is someone who was at the end of their life, who left without a lot of pain or struggle, which was their goal, Mm -hmm. who probably needed some permission to let go. Mm. He was at that point when he was like living for the next milestone for his grandchildren. In fact, we joke that my brother killed him because he decided to take more time (laughs) in his college route (laughs) Hilarious! because the next thing was going to be like, I'll, you know, I'll live until, you know, Donald graduates college. And Mm. we're like, Donald, he took an extra year. And grandpa was just like, I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's cute. But during that experience of his funeral, I just really, really tuned in to the energy and the people around me Mm. and the kind of support they provided. And I just found it so vital and it really helped our whole family in our grieving. Mm. And I um, ended up giving an impromptu eulogy that Mm. I know really helped my mom and her sister. And I just had this thought like, I could do this for other people too. Hmm. And at the time I was a wedding photographer doing nothing similar, nothing overtly similar. And I thought, oh gosh, do I have to go become a nurse? Like my first thought was a hospice nurse Mm -hmm. because they're right there with people. But just through some discovery, I ended up discovering about this thing called chaplaincy, Mm -hmm. spiritual and emotional support. And I was like, that's a job (laughs) to support people in that way. And I just kept the question open for a little while because at first I thought, okay, I have to go become a minister. I'm not Mm. really religious person. What was your spiritual upbringing? I say like a default Christian. So Mm -hmm. we didn't go to church, but we celebrated Christmas and that kind of thing. So at first I thought I would become Unitarian Universalist because that's, I live, you know, near Boston. So that's kind of where it all started. And I was like, well, that's close enough. But then I ended up finding the seminary. It's called One Spirit Interfaith Seminary. It's in Manhattan. And they describe themselves as being a school of the heart. And so we study different religions and you have to go and worship and pray and read the scripture. But the goal is not to become an expert on religion. The goal is to understand how spirituality works in our lives. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And I love, I mean, we, we get woo woo and talk about all sorts of spirituality here. And when we talked before, you'd mentioned the book Mystic Heart. And I read so slowly because I read like literally like there's 14 books, right? <laughs> I bet over there I'm pointing. So I read very slowly, but I've read a little bit of it and I already have resonated so much because I mean, I actually posted on Instagram about this today. When I was a kid, I remember I was raised Christian Methodist. And I remember saying, like, God presents himself in different ways to different people, right? Like, because they would talk about, you know, doing missionary work in Africa. And I'm like, I'm sure the people in Africa have figured it out for themselves, right? You know, instead of trying to force people to believe in one specific way, when you really look at the intersection of all religions there is an intersection, right? And it doesn't fucking matter, you know, who the God is, if you call him God or whatever it is, it's all the same. It's just about a loving presence, right? Absolutely. All the traditions teach about compassion Mm -hmm. and all the traditions give us ways to move through life's thresholds. And Mm -hmm. all the traditions, you know, the golden rule. (laughs) Right, right. Is there. And then there's also like some crazy mad distortions in all of them too. Right. Right. And, you know, acts of violence that can come out of almost all of them. So it is much more about how we live into them than did we find like the right one. Right, right. Well, I've been having a lot of conversations about certainty lately and yeah, so you're smiling. I'm not even going to say anything. You talk. <laughs> Clearly that brought something up. Well, I think learning to live with uncertainty, or we could say embracing the mystery, mm-hmm. is one of the things that we learn on the spiritual path. And again, we can learn it on any spiritual path. Yeah, right. And I wonder if there is something about the human brain or... So I did ketamine treatments fairly recently. Have you ever experienced ketamine? No. The way that I experienced it was I was getting a message from something. I don't think it was God. And it was very cheeky. It was really funny because it would say things like, oh, don't worry about that. You silly Billy. Like, you know, think about this instead. (laughs) So I was just writing and it was this automatic writing and it very quickly became two voices, my voice and this other voice. And the thing that I really got out of that, that one of the things that confirmed what I believe is that the human brain is so, we're not going to get it. Like the concept of God or the higher power, or the universal love, whatever it is, is beyond what our human minds can understand. And so it doesn't matter, right? And that is faith, right? If you believe that there's something else out there, but you don't have to know what it is. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those, like, the more you think you know, Mm -hmm. the less you know. I have to ask you, so two voices, Mm -hmm. if you had to try and say who Who or what were the two voices, Well, one was me and the other one, because I asked that question, I said, are you God? And it said, no, I can't remember what the exact words were, but the feeling, the sense that I got was it is the essence of God within me. So maybe like my spirit guide or whatever that is directly connected to source, but is not me and is not God. It's so fucking trippy, right? But I know that you're like, I see you nodding, like you get it. Yeah, yeah. and I think it's fascinating to me, you know, the world's gotten more secular, but it's so interesting how many people who 
are completely atheist in their mindset and totally secular and are quick to call a bunch of things crap, but they have that one story, yeah, that one critical, mm-hmm. pivotal moment in mm-hmm. their life. They heard a voice. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's the voice of a deceased loved one. Sometimes I heard a thing the other day. Who was it? Is it George Saunders? The author was talking about this critical moment. He was going to go someplace really dangerous and he got a vision of, and it was like an older version of himself talking to him. Mm. I think so many of us, like in these pivotal moments, that voice gets through. And right, we might say it's an older version. We might say it's an essence of God within us. We might, again, I don't really know that what we call it is the same as how we experience. The important thing is how you listen how you enact what you've learned. And um, I think the spiritual path is about maintaining the receptivity to that voice. Mm. It's not just mm-hmm. in moments that might be assisted chemically or might be our lowest or highest moments. The spiritual path is learning to be in conversation with that voice as much as possible. Right. Whether that be through prayer, meditation, walking in nature, any and all of the above. Do you have a mystical story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? You don't want to share. You don't have to share. I've got a few. It's funny when we spoke before, I kind of talked around one and you were like encouraging me to tell it. And I realized afterward, I was hesitant to tell that story because I actually feel like this one particular thing that happened to me when I was in college, when I was in the woods in Europe. Mm, right. I think I haven't fully absorbed the messages of that mm, experience. Yeah. And that's why it kind of felt like I don't want to tell it because I almost don't know how to tell it in a yeah. way. One that I do feel more like I can share and I have seen its direct revelation in my life has to do with grieving when I was young. Mm. And so my dad died when I was 12. And when I was in high school, maybe 14, 15, I remember just having a moment. I'm just alone in my bedroom, just full of like self-loathing teenage thoughts, Mm -hmm. kind of missing my dad. And then I think there was some thought pattern around feeling childish for missing my dad. Because, you know, Mm. when you're 14, you don't think you're a child anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You were 14 when you got died? Some kind of tension with that. And then just kind of like an, forget it. And just surrendering mentally, Mm. physically, like physically Mm -hmm. surrendering to my grief, which then brought on an emotional, spiritual, mental surrender. And I remember just laying on my back and just letting waves and waves of sensation move through me. And initially it was kind of coming out of my gut, which I actually just realized that recently my cat died (laughs) and I was feeling how that grief moved in my body. And that was also coming from my gut. And then actually bounced me back to that moment of like, oh yeah, grief, gut, There's, you know, whatever we want to explore for that. So it started that way in this experience years ago, but then it started to be more of a ripple, like from above moving through my body. And today I would call it a spiritual experience. At the time it just happened, I had no way to categorize it. Although I was starting to practice yoga and I do believe that practicing yoga allowed me to be receptive, even though I wasn't consciously thinking like, I'm feeling something coming on, I'm going to lay down. I think the the pathways were open in my energy body because of it. So I had that experience, just kind of filed it away, didn't share with anyone at the time. And then my senior year of high school, it was like the year we're graduating and I was just like, 
on that high. Like my birthday's in June, school was finishing. I knew where I was going to college. I was so excited to move on. Just high, high, high energy for like this week long period. And I went to my yoga class and I came out and I was sitting in the car and just like had a deep breath. And then spontaneously, those same waves of energy started coming through. And I can picture myself almost as an outline because I remember drawing it at the time, like the outline of my body sitting in the car and just feeling the waves and then feeling that like dissolve and just feeling, you know, like you said, it almost sounds cheesy. These things are classic, can sound cheesy, but just feeling mm-hmm. that one, feeling no separation, mm-hmm. yeah. no separation. Mm-hmm. And that was the same way I had felt when I surrendered to grief. And so again, when we look at like comparing religions, so many scriptures talk about this experience of joy or bliss and grief being the same, that they work the same depth in our heart. Ooh, they work the same depth in our heart. Wow. And there was a, someone just shared the other day, actually, on social media about a pregnancy loss and then a subsequent pregnancy. And so she was sharing Mm. that she was pregnant and she was also sharing that she had had this loss. Yeah. And she posted a Kilgore Braun quote, which I can't remember exactly mm-hmm. how it goes, but it's something about like our sorrows carving our heart deeper. And so then we can mm. experience joy more deeply. Right. I think so many of us know this, like mm-hmm. on some level, I think a lot of people have even reflected on it. And so I think very young, that set me on my path in many ways to experience that mm-hmm. at a very young age. So I think those experiences together just deepened the level to which I'm embodied here. Head Heart Conversations is a webinar series for psychotherapists designed to invite your inner healer to the forefront of your personal and professional life. At Head Heart Therapy, we approach healing from the inside out. We believe that in order to offer the best care to our clients, we therapists must do our inner work as well. At this point in history, we're called to move beyond the old ways of being and courageously step into a new paradigm. Therapists are poised to support our clients' transformation, but we must also transform ourselves. In this final webinar, coming up on Friday, November 19th, called Queering Our Conversations by our wonderful operations director, Benji Martin, we'll focus on topics of gender and sexuality. A simplified understanding of the queer spectrum will be discussed to provide a baseline recognition towards holding space for LGBTQIA clients. Building upon the vulnerability asked of participants in the other seminars will build a space to confront internal homophobia and transphobia, challenge assumptions and biases, and prepare ourselves to hold genuine, caring, and authentic space for queer clients. And as a special thank you to Conversations with the Wounded Healer listeners, you can get $20 off your order by using the code PODCAST when you register. For more information and to register, please visit www.tinyurl.com slash hhconvos. And by the way, therapists, this also qualifies for your cultural competency CEUs. We hope to see you there. Well, I also hear too, there's something about your frequency that made it really easy to tune in because, right, you having these experiences and not knowing what was happening and the opening that yoga kind of created, it's almost like, I wonder if you were like right on the edge the whole time and then you started doing yoga and your frequency was like, ah, now it's like this tuning fork of resonance, right? That you then can have these mystical experiences. I wonder, I wonder, and I know for sure, for sure, loss at an early age. Yeah. was a huge piece of it. 
I don't know yeah. mm-hmm. who I would be if I hadn't had loss at that early age. Mm-hmm. And how, how old you were 14 when your dad died? I was 12. Oh, you're 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was sudden. Yeah. I actually found my brother was visiting and we were looking through old family photos and there is this Oh my God, I should send it to you as a therapist. I'd be very interested to see you to say about it. It's a, mm. an article from our local paper about a grief group that I was in. And they came, they sent a photographer to our house to take a picture of me and my little brother and sister on our swing set looking miserable. Ew. Yeah. Ew. And then this article starts with like, being 12 is so hard. Da, 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 da. Imagine also losing a parent. I was like, oh my God. They so just gross. like used me to like, yeah. I don't even know. I was like, wow. And we had just moved too. And so, yeah, there was just that time and that shifting. And, but definitely just being intimate with loss early, you know, it's hard. Like, obviously I would rather my dad didn't die. Right. But of course we know, a la mm-hmm. the Wounded Healer podcast, mm-hmm. <laughs> of course mm-hmm. we know that these experiences define us and often define our work. Hmm. Well, that oh, that article grosses me out and just makes me think how much, again, back to this idea of certainty, we want to distance ourselves from death. And both of my parents have passed away. And so my understanding of grief is it was shaped a lot by the way that other people reacted to what I was experiencing and just the fact of, you know, I was 30, I think it was 34, 30, I don't fucking remember, but somewhere around there, which is still young, not like you, but you shouldn't lose parents in your 30s, right? And the way that people clearly couldn't tolerate even thinking about what it would be like for them to experience that and how distancing that is. And also it's so unhelpful it's so painful because it makes you feel like a weird, like I already feel like a weirdo because my parents died within nine months of each other. And then I feel like a weirdo because you can't tolerate whatever it is that I'm bringing to the table. And my grief is very complex because my relationship with my parents was very complex. And within my grief, there was also relief and anger and all sorts of stuff other than sadness. And we just don't fucking know how to do it. Well, and then you're isolated with all yes. this. Yeah. Because no one wants to listen or they can't or they think it's a disservice mm-hmm. to bring it up. It's interesting for me because I remember since I had that loss young and now I'm almost 40, I have seen how people change when they have losses in their life. Mm. And I remember like in my 20s living in a house with like five people mm. and one of my roommates, her uncle died and I came home and everybody was like tiptoeing in the kitchen, really weird. Mm. And I was like, guys, what's up? <laughs> you know, I didn't know. I know, right? <laughs> like, are the police coming? I don't know. And this roommate, her bedroom was right off the kitchen mm. and she was in there sobbing. Mm. Mm. And it was so interesting because my instinct was to go knock on the door. Mm. And everyone else's instinct was to be really quiet. And that it wasn't. And Mm. I did go knock on the door and she did want company. Of course, you have to Mm. be prepared that someone doesn't answer Mm -hmm. the door. They say, no, Mm -hmm. thank you or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But she did want support. And it's interesting because as I get older and the people around me experience more losses, I think when you have loss, it's often a conversion experience. Mm -hmm. And I have a very close woman in my life who had a really horrible loss of her newborn baby. that the baby died almost right away. 
Mm. And she knew that was going to happen. Oh, so God. she went through everything with delivering. Mm. Beautiful being enters the world. She becomes mm. a parent. Baby dies. Something, one of the many things she told me in all her time processing that, she experienced that emotional isolation also. Because if she told someone what happened, then she felt she had to tend to their emotional reaction. Yes. <laughs> I always have to pause for the, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I sometimes I'm try, I try to be like, don't say sorry, because it's just so invalidating when you do that. So I can't even imagine right. what this woman w- had to be like, oh, now I have to take care of you because you just can't imagine what that would feel right. like. And it's so fucking you just heard stupid. the story of, a, of right. a baby dying and a motherless child and it's painful for mm. you. When that pain, that empathetic pain people feel should bring us together. But in fact, it's mm-hmm. very hard. And- well, it's sympathy versus empathy. Yes. Right. Because sympathy is like, I don't know about that over there. That only happens to those people. I can't even begin. Empathy is like, yes, we can be in this space together. Yeah. And not being afraid to feel it. Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. their rejection of it. Right. And one thing that she said to me in that process was that she wished she could go back and talk to other people who mm-hmm. had experienced loss differently because mm-hmm. she saw how she might have allowed other people to be isolated in their grief. And you, but in, mm-hmm. a, in a way, you don't know till you know. You don't know. In a way, you just, because our culture teaches us one way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. going back to religion, mm-hmm. you know, and we can talk about all the bad things religion has brought <laughs> into the world and totally mm-hmm. fair. And religion was a way that people have been intimate with death over the centuries right. and millennia. And mm-hmm. some people today, you know, Muslim and Jewish and other traditions have. And interestingly, even in Catholicism, there are things that have fallen off of the American Catholic radar, but that there Hmm. was more of a connection of you're supposed to grieve together and things like this. So Mm. religion kept us intimate with death and religion gives us a framework for Mm. death. And so that's something that we've lost as we've moved away from being religious. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, back to this idea of certainty, there's so many people who just want to know what happens when you die. And that is supposed to create, you know, whatever. I mean, the thing that I found for myself that really did help was creating some sort of conceptualization of what I believed happened, you know, when my parents were dead. And I believe that I can still have a relationship with them. And not only that, but heal our relationship in this lifetime. And I ended up working with a client while my mom was dying and she had a really intimate loss. And so we kind of made it up together, like what, you know, she believed in. And it was such a beautiful exploration of, you know, she was like, I'll take this, but I'm not, I don't really like that. And this is important to me. And she ended up having conversations with this person and has dreams where they hang out. And it was so gorgeous. But I don't know what happens when you die. And I don't care that I don't know. But what I do believe just helps me live with the loss. So I'm curious, when you were creating that framework, did Mm -hmm. you write it down? Or how did you engage with it? Because it sounds like part of what you're saying is you created it, but you don't totally believe it, but it's still helpful. It's not that I don't believe it, but I don't need a certainty. Right. If somebody said, prove to me that you can have a connection of your parents after death, what I will tell you are the stories that 
help me believe it. So can I tell you one of the stories Please that's like my <laughs> fucking favorite? I don't, I don't know if I've told it. I've probably told it on the podcast before, but so my parents died within nine months of each other. And right after both of them had died, there were little things that kept happening that were like signals, signs that they were watching. And the most, well, two, two I'll tell you two of them. So one, my dad, whenever he would go to the grocery store with us, which was not often because he didn't do like women's work, quote unquote, he would always like grab a candy bar or a bag of chips or something to drink and just like mow it down while we were shopping and then put the empty wrapper on the conveyor belt. And he just really got a kick out of like the cashier being like, what the fuck is this? And he'd be like, yeah, I ate it. So my brother and I would be like, oh, we're going to go pull a Paul. That's, so we called it pulling a Paul. That was his name. So back when names were on Coke products, after my dad had died, I go into Target and I'm like, I'm going to pull a Paul. And I open the, you know, little refrigerator thingy. And you know, you have to get the coldest one. So you have to reach all <laughs> the way in the back, right? Everyone knows this. Yeah. I, so I reached all the way in the back. And what did I pull out? Paul. Mm-hmm. So that was one. And he kept coming. Either I would get Paul or dad on Diet Cokes for like six months. They said dad sometimes? Mm-hmm. Yep. Some of them say mom, some of them say dad. Yeah, it was interesting. And so that one happened. And then there was another one that was probably like a year after they had died. And I was going to the grocery store listening to NPR and they had a story about synchronicities. And that just got me thinking like, oh, you know, there's been no Paul Diet Cokes lately. I, you know, whatever. I just, who cares? So I go through the grocery store, you know, you do your thing. I don't really shop with a list. I have no idea how much money I'm going to spend. I just do my thing, go to the cashier and she rings it up and she says 111.47, which was my dad's birthday. And she said 111.47. She didn't say $111.47. And so I just start weeping and she's like, what is Uh, happening? (laughs) I'm like, I can't, there's no time to explain. Just here's my credit card. I'm just going to go weep in my car now Mm. for a while. So... I've had enough experiences like that. And there, there are many, many more. And I, I, you know, I've talked to psychics who like speak in his, his voice. There's a whole different thing with my mom. She's not interested in revisiting this lifetime. So we don't really have much of a connection. But yeah, he apologized in a psychic reading at one point. He said, I'm so sorry. And the psychic said he was in so much fear in this lifetime. He couldn't do what he was supposed to do. So that's why I believe Mm-hmm. And how does that affect your work if it does? That's a really good question. Because my upbringing with religion was so constricted, my mom, she would say Jesus was her best friend. It was not a question of whether or not you go to church. You go to church and you fucking believe this shit. I mean, she would never cuss, but <laughs> it was it was expected that we loved and worshiped Jesus. And my dad was on the other end. I have a theory that he was abused by a priest because there was this weird like fascination with religion, but also rejection of God and especially rejection of the way that my mother would talk about God. And so I rejected, of course, as many people do who come from very strict religious households, I rejected all of that. So then when my mom particularly died, there was space for me to explore what it meant for me. And 
if she was still alive, I don't know that I would be as spiritual as I am now because I wouldn't have had the room. Like if she knew that I was practicing like witchcraft and playing with crystals, she would be, she would think I was going to hell. She would think that I'm going to summon the devil and all this shit. And just, you know, it's ignorance of not knowing what paganism and witchcraft actually is. So I have freedom and how that changes my work is everything because it's changed me. Wow. Beautiful. Thanks. I don't know. I don't know why you're interviewing me on my show, but but I'll take it. Well, I'll share something that came up. I don't even know where that question came from. I think I just wanted Mm -hmm. to hear more, period. But then I was thinking, I was like, why did I ask that? Like, how has it changed my work? And it's interesting. This feels like a little bit going out on a limb to share this, but I am no psychic. But I definitely embrace that uncertainty and that Mm -hmm. there are messages that come through and there are thoughts that come through. And then there's the skeptical part of me that it was like, that's like, well, that's just because you saw a thing and it's lingering somewhere in your consciousness. And then there's another part of me that's like, that's because sometimes the veil is thin and I am receptive and spirits come to me. And it is interesting officiating weddings because weddings bring up grief And there's this cultural expectation that weddings are the happiest day of your life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And what a fucking setup. (laughs) What a setup. What a setup. Oh my God, it's much to say about that, which is what my whole, Mm. I love that. Actually, that's an interesting phrase. That's what I should do that in my marketing. You've been, yes, you get engaged and the wedding industrial complex Mm -hmm. gives you a to-do list. All the while, issues of family trauma, gender expression, yep. finances get stirred up, but you have no mm-hmm. time and space to deal because you have to figure out the other things. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly the intersection where I'm working. But specifically, what I'm thinking about is with grief, it highlights the absences in our life, right? Because there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a parent dance and there's a this and right. there's a that. Mm-hmm. So if that person's not there, it's extra right. highlighted. And I always talk through with people in the ceremony do we want to do some kind of memorial or remembrance? Mm, mm-hmm. At the very, very, very minimum, at the beginning, when we acknowledge how beautiful it is to have this community together, it is right to also acknowledge people who cannot be there, some who maybe mm-hmm. just couldn't get there that day, and they're sending their love from afar, and some who are deceased. Then depending on the nature of the loss, maybe we name specific people, and maybe we have a ritual Right. But so many people, so many people are afraid to bring down the vibe of the wedding. Mm. God, but that's so beautiful. What I try to help people understand without being pushy, because, you know, it's their wedding, it's their choice in the end. But, you know, that whole quote about like our grief carbon space for our joy, like when you have the remembrances, when you let yourself feel, I love this quote from um, sick activist Valerie Kaur. She says, that grief is the price of love. Yes, yes. When we acknowledge those remembrances, it is another mm-hmm. dimension of love. These are people we love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so to acknowledge them first, to invite them in, and then when we move into the love story of the couple, nothing is lost. If anything, everyone is on a deeper level. Everyone's hearts are open more. So mm-hmm. then when we move into yeah. the love story of the couple, right. and all that there is to celebrate, people feel it much more deeply. And it's interesting because just this past week, I did a remembrance ritual. And as I was saying, a lot of people don't want to do a ritual. They hear what I'm saying and they'll maybe move toward naming someone. Or if the loss is very fresh or complex, an in-between I recommend is to put their name in the program. 
yeah. so that their name is there. But if they, but for someone who might have a very complex grief or maybe there's something that they really could mentally get derailed, mm-hmm. then that's a good way to go. But I worked with a couple, they're older. And so that I think helps in terms of their, not helps, it, it gives them a different understanding of loss. Between the two of them, they lost three parents. So we did a remembrance ritual. That's me and my husband. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So mm-hmm. yep. knowing it and, and wanting those people to be there. So they had a ritual where we named people one by one and we lit the candle. And again, I'm no psychic, but as we spoke those names, I really felt those people arriving. Yeah. Yeah. And it mm-hmm. moved through mm-hmm. me. Like, and yeah. in this particular case, they had just lost somebody. Like oh, the family oh, yeah. had just been at the funeral four days before. Yeah. And there was mm-hmm. all this talk about, is it going to be mm-hmm. too painful for the mother of that person who's going to be there to say the names? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, if that's the case, I think we would have to scrap the ritual because we're, we're not going to name people who died 10 years ago and not name the person who died a week ago. Right. Mm-hmm. So we approached it with so much tenderness mm-hmm. and just acknowledging. And I even said my very words were, this last name is the most difficult to speak because mm. we are still in mourning. Wow. Oof. Chills. And I felt, and it's interesting because I often get emotional because of all the things moving through me. But I think it was one of the first times that I'm working with like, quote, strangers, like not people Mm. I know Mm -hmm. at all, Mm -hmm. where I got emotional, like my voice shaking, still held the space, Mm. still held the space, but that presence emerged and I was Mm -hmm. like, wow. Mm. What power. That's so beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's happening for you right now? Just feeling how it's all the things and how Mm -hmm. it's our job, your job, my job, all healers to help people hold things all together. And one thought that my brain popped up in, because I know timing wise, this podcast is going to come out much later, but actually I'm doing a wedding in two days that is going to have a very intense, for lack of a better word, remembrance. Mm. And it's a young couple. Mm. But the bride has lived with loss for a long time. Mm. And she came to me wanting to do, it was on her mind. We want to do remembrance ritual. And we also talked about her relationship to her family. She had a very complex growing up in part because of having had these early losses. And she has this really interesting family constellation and it led her to want to do the remembrance. But in my discovery call with her, there was also just how much gratitude she has that although she didn't have the family structure that we think of as ideal, and she was even moving countries and things like that, Mm. she just has so, so much love and gratitude for her family. And she really Mm. wanted that to be part of the ceremony too. Hmm. And what we ended up devising, I'll tell you about it, Sarah, after it happens, but I know it's going to be so powerful is um, when possible, I actually like to acknowledge the dead and the living the same. Mm-hmm. So what we are doing is a rose ritual where mm. she give a rose to each of her family members, which includes cousins, aunts, uncles who are like siblings, parents to her. So mm. giving them a rose just to say, thank you. Thank you. Well, and then we're going to put a rose next to each of the photographs of the deceased. Mm, I love that. And I'm feeling, I'm anticipating Maybe they're coming to me already, but I'm anticipating Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's going to get really full up there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I almost wondered, I actually toyed with telling them 
that I anticipated mm. that just mm-hmm. and, and not without pushing but you know I never want to push my own belief but just to say my belief is like you were saying Sarah that we can continue a relationship with people once they're on the other side of the veil and I thought about should I tell them that I might experience people arriving I ended up not I ended up just seeing where our conversations about it went mm-hmm. and it will be for them to have their own experience but it will be powerful yeah mm. Well, all this begs the question, are you a healer? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Lower, you and I talked about this before, like lower, mm-hmm. I'd say lower case H healer because I have yeah. been taught. One of my teachers goes by the indigenous belief that you cannot call yourself a healer. Only someone else who's been healed by you can call you a healer. Mm-hmm. But that said, people have told me they have been healed by mm-hmm. Our interaction which facilitated so I think you and I talked about this before like I'm not going to be popping it onto my Instagram bio anytime soon right right <laughs> but interfaith minister slash healer slash healer with like a little star emoji but if it wasn't healing work I don't think I would still be at it mm-hmm. how about the term wounded healer oh a thousand percent <laughs> yeah <laughs> that one that one's easy totally mm-hmm. wounded you know my early wounds have just brought the awareness and then kind of rot the depth of my, you know, my psyche, my body in this time to allow me to do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So for couples who might be interested in, in hiring you, what does it look like to create these ceremonies? So the first step is something that I'm beginning to offer on my own, thanks to the Rebel Therapist Rebel Mastermind. Therapist Mastermind. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you and I have been in this fabulous group where we get to think things through. Mm-hmm. So I am starting to offer my process that just helps you get your priorities clear and helps you get shared language with your fiance and helps you be thinking about your marriage. Mm-hmm. And then the wedding is the threshold through to the marriage. So that. I'm still working on naming it. It's something like the soulful ceremony, the purpose ceremony. So people can work with me through a series of discussions and a little bit of writing reflection. They end with a clear idea of what marriage means to them, what experience they want to have on their wedding day and things like that. And then from there, if people want to add on designing the ceremony, that flows right in because I have such a good understanding. I can help them craft that. And then the next, they can hire me to write their love story. I go mm-hmm. deep into the depth of my own heart just to really hear and mm. listen how people are transformed by their partnership mm. and then how the world around them is transformed by their partnership yeah. and sharing that in the wedding. And some people take that and then have their friend officiate the wedding. And then some people have me be the one that day. So it's a little little progression, mm-hmm. but we start with package stuff. Mm. <laughs> And I remember when you first started talking about this, I was like, oh, where were you 14 years ago when I got married? Because, I mean, we we actually had my childhood minister marry us because he was somebody who actually saw me, even though, you know, he was still a part of the church. He never pushed the dogma. He was also very open to, you know, really stimulating conversation about all of it. And so I was like, can I fly you in and like, have you officiate my wedding? And it was really sweet. But to have something like this created, if I would get married again, I would do it so differently now that I don't have to please anybody. Were your parents still alive at the time of your wedding? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got it. Mm-hmm. That's nice that it worked out that I'm sure your mom was very, very pleased. 
oh, yes. minister was mm-hmm. doing it and that it was someone that you could choose authentically also. It sounds exactly. like you did resonate with that person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's becoming so popular for people to have friends and family officiate their wedding. And the personal touch of that is beautiful. But the truth is so many people don't really know how to craft the ceremony, even right. if they can deliver it. Right. Mm-hmm. So the people end up Googling stuff. And so I had been a wedding mm-hmm. photographer for 10 years and I can tell everyone's hitting the same, you know, we hit this, yeah. the same 10 sites on Google and our ceremonies all look the same mm-hmm. and they just don't quite have the knowledge. So I'm really loving what the mastermind has helped me figure out is that I can just help people get started and then they can keep going because they're clear from there. Mm, that's so great. And such a unique service. Yeah, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. But with a unique service, it's also hard. I'm having the hardest time naming it because I'm like, yeah, is counseling, is it coaching? Is it just an experience? Because I was, I'm interviewing my couples who I've worked with before. And they were like, well, you also helped us figure out that we wanted this at the reception. Because when we mm-hmm. talk about like, people who've died, then we also talk about how do you want to do the parent dances or not? Or mm-hmm. so it also leads into like experience design. So I'm still working it out, but um, mm-hmm. the details, but really loving getting to be a spiritual guide for people. Mm, that's so wonderful. Well, this feels like a good place for you to do the product placement. Tell us how we can find you, Instagram, website, all the things. So my website is MaureenCottonCeremonies.com. My Instagram is also MaureenCottonCeremonies. And that's where I hang out digitally is Instagram. So Mm -hmm. come find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here through all the technical difficulties and all that we've dealt with. This was the conversation that needed to be had, right? 100%. Wonderful. Thank you for being here. And I can't wait to see you at our next Mastermind Meetup. See you soon. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks so much to Maureen for being a guest today. If you'd like to learn more about Maureen, you can visit our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thank you to the amazing Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.